In the land of Uz, that's an archaeological place, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless, upright, he feared God, shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the east. And then skipping ahead to verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans, a tribe, uh, attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who escaped to tell you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing out of respect for God's word. Well, we're going to look very honestly in this series at questions, real questions that people have that keep them from faith in God or that they just wrestle with. And uh, I, as, as we jump into this, I always want to be respectful and I want to be plain spoken. And, and I, as I put myself in your shoes, I'm thinking, okay, what are the things that I would want to know before I'm willing to even listen to what somebody has to say about those kinds of things. And so I feel like there are some statements, some kind of pre-statements that I need to make that if you're a person who's wrestling, you might say, yeah, but you're biased because of these things. And I want to put those things out so that we can kind of all look at them and agree that, yeah, okay, we're wrestling with these things. But I've got three things I think I need to say to you that will, might help you listen to what we're going to talk about this morning about the problem of suffering. And, and here are the three things. Uh, Number one, I I fully recognize that there are a multitude of reasons why people believe or don't believe. There are social reasons. If everybody in your circle is not a believer in God or does not have any faith or church is nowhere in their background, it's much harder or maybe almost impossible for you to believe because everybody in your circle is like, that's just for people who need a crutch. Uh, There are very personal reasons that people believe that some people go through very painful things in their life. We'll talk about that in a little bit. They go through very painful things and and they find that uh, that faith, that uh, understanding that God is with them is a very powerful source of comfort. And so they believe because, because of the pain that they've gone through. And then I've observed as a pastor, I've seen people go through the very same kinds of pain and they go in the exact opposite direction, which is what we're going to be talking about this morning. And they say, I don't understand how I can believe in a good God when I've gone through all the difficulties that I've gone through. And then there are very real intellectual questions that people have. And some people say, you know what? Uh, Christianity makes sense of the big questions that people ask. And it makes sense of life, and it gives me a framework for understanding. And some people looking at some of the same things 
uh, say the exact opposite. Well, it just makes no sense to me, and I don't understand how any reasonable person can think that. So I just want to help let you know, I, I get it. I get there are multiple reasons that, that we believe. Um, also, I just, again, be plain about this. The, the goal of this series is I'm trying to convince you. I'm trying to win you over. Now, you need to understand I'm an Orthodox Christian, meaning um, I believe the creeds, and we're going to do a series in a few months called Creeds and Deeds, looking at all the ancient Christian creeds. And I, I understand them to describe what is real and what reality is like. And so I believe in the resurrection of Jesus bodily from the dead. I believe Jesus was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life and died a substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. It's what the Apostle Paul called the faith once delivered to the saints. And I'm just putting my cards on the table. I'm hoping through this series, as we ask these questions together, that you would see that and consider it and hopefully even want it. Now, let me just make a caveat right there. I'm not saying that's some sort of mindless thing, that, that, that Orthodox Christianity is not some card that you receive at indoctrination class and you just believe things mindlessly. I would tell you it's the exact opposite uh, some people on the spectrum of belief, uh, on, the, on the side that would say there is no God, the way they describe faith is that faith is this giant leap into the dark, and they can't make that leap, and so they have no faith. And there are people on the other side who believe that say faith is also a giant leap, and you just need to do it. And I would say that biblical faith, especially if you delve into places like uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is much more like the scientific process. It's a, a process of exploration and understanding and deepening your understanding. And so what I hope to do in the series is show you how uh, the message of Jesus is actually rationally sensible, so it makes sense to us, and then at the same time, it's emotionally satisfying and it actually moves us. Now, I understand there are some of you that heard all about what I just said right there, and you're a believer, and you're saying, why are you, why are you hemming and hawing? It's the truth. Just tell people the truth. It doesn't need to make sense to anybody. It doesn't need to satisfy me. And you know what? You're 100% right. Whatever is true doesn't need my approval or your approval. The truth does not need my approval. Here's what I'm asking you to do, if that's where you are in your your processing of this, is I'm just asking you to engage in an act of love and help the person who struggles. Because listen, if you don't wrestle, I promise you someone around you does. And just saying to them, it's true, just believe, all it does for a thoughtful person is pushes them further away. And frankly, it's not how the Bible handles the problem of doubt and faith. And questions. So that's the second reason. A uh, third thing I want to put out there is that on all sides today, um, belief is very thin. What do, what do I mean by that? I mean that most people, whether they are a person who says they do not believe or they're a person who says they believe, is basing that on what I would call kind of pithy sayings and groupthink. And uh, there's the philosopher Peter Berger, he said, that there are what he calls plausibility structures that exist in every culture. A plausibility structure is the, the thoughts, it's the unthought thoughts that exist underneath what everybody just assume is accurate and correct. And, and the philosopher Charles Taylor, he said that from the year zero to the year 1500 or so, even before that, 
that it was, the plausibility structure was such that basically everybody believed in God. You, you might be a person who said, yeah, I don't question God's existence and suffering and da-da-da. But uh, up till about the year 1500 or 1600 or so, everybody, that was the plausibility structure. It just everyone assumed that was the case. It's flipped, Charles Taylor says. And Charles Taylor says that, listen, now the plausibility is structure is such that people say, how could a rational person in this day and age who has any brain in their head believe in faith and in God? How could any, that's the plausibility structure. It's the, it's the unthought thoughts. But here's what, I'm, here's what I'm saying. Most people hold that view very, very thinly. And so I'm asking you during this series to pause whatever your, whatever your take is on faith and actually dig deep. Now, if you can't agree and you think this through, I will absolutely respect that. But don't dismiss what has literally transformed the world when you do the historical work and you understand how the message of Jesus has changed human history. Don't dismiss what has changed the world because you saw a meme on the internet. Are you tracking with me? And if you believe, I hope through this series that you actually go deeper and your roots get deeper and anything less than going deeper on how you see things, I would say is a disservice to yourself. So I want you to come along with that. Just I needed to kind of get those things out of the way. Now, here's what we're going to talk about today. And honestly, I think it's the biggest emotional problem, and it's the problem of suffering. We took a poll this week in, in the service last, uh, last Sunday, and uh, this was the, the, the response that got the second most votes. The number one vote was the problem of religious hypocrisy of Christians and leaders, and we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. Um, but this is about the problem of suffering, and, and it's, this is the question. How can there be a good, all-powerful God in the face of terrible suffering. How, how can that be? Uh, December the 25th, Christmas Day, 2004, uh, my wife, uh, Andrea, was, in, uh, was very, very pregnant uh, with our first child, um, ready to burst just at, literally any day. She was already past her due date, and the doctors were trying to manage all of that. And, and we d- weren't living near family, and we didn't want to prepare anything, and and she was so uncomfortable, she didn't want to go to anyone's house. And so we did what you do when you're in the South, because we lived in Richmond, Virginia, on Christmas Day, and you don't know what is open. And so we went to Waffle House, right? I mean, that's what you do on Christmas Day in the South. And if anybody, by the way, if anybody has connections with Waffle House, and you can get Waffle House in w- Wichita, Kansas, I will love you forever. Come on with the hash browns. Uh, so, so we go in, and I, this is what I'll tell you. Um, if you go, if you want a, a seat at, because it was packed. I mean, you'd be shocked. Packed on Christmas Day. If you want an immediate seat in Waffle House on Christmas Day, go in the door with a woman who is about to give birth in the next 30 minutes. I mean, you will get an immediate table, right? So we sat down, had our meal, and then the next day she started to have labor pains. December the 26th, 2014. And then uh, on, she labored for a while, and our son had the cord was wrapped around his neck a couple of times, and it was a kind of an emergency C-section and quite, quite the ordeal. Now, those of you who've been in that, you know you're really focused in on what's happening uh, with your family and, and your, your wife and, and the kid getting ready to be born. And, and during that whole process, the, you know how the TVs are there in the room, in a hospital room, and, and the TV was on, and I, I saw kind of out of the corner of my eye 
these things happening on the screen. And they looked bad, but I just really wasn't, I was really focused on, on my wife and on my son. And I, I didn't quite understand what had happened until several days later when it had kind of all calmed down. And what happened on December the 26th, 2004, is that a 9.1 magnitude earthquake, now I, I can't fully explain the scale to you, but it's an exponential amount of force based on the number. And we've been having like, you know, 4.1, 4.2, 9 points, so exponentially larger. I, I looked up the, the power of this underneath the water in the Indian Ocean that day, December the 26th. Uh, 350 million times the power of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima, boom, under the water in the Indian Ocean, December 26th. Pushed up a 90-foot wave, tsunami wave, that then crashed onto the coast of Indonesia, specifically in the town of Bande Acho was the one that got the most, the most pain from this. This is a picture. I, I don't think that those people made it. A uh, picture of how the waters come in and just decimate. And then here's a picture from the just the absolute destruction of that tsunami. 9.1 on the Richter scale. 230,000 people wiped away. Now, why am I telling you all that? Well, how, how do you make sense of a good, all-powerful God in the face of that. If you're a human being at all, your heart is ripped in two by the suffering that you seal. It is universal to feel that kind of pain. And I can fully understand why someone might say, I don't know if I can believe in a God in the face of things like that. So let me, let me give you the question as it's classically framed in philosophy, people who try to make sense of this question. It goes like this. God is either all good, but not powerful enough to affect any real change, or God is all powerful, but he's not good. So God is either not good or he's not all powerful. Now, if you're a thinking person and you've thought about this for a minute or two, this is a problem. The book of Job here in the Old Testament is a story of someone who suffers terribly. Now, I want you to note something. If you say, uh, you know, well, you know, the Bible is this like simplistic book that gives these really simplistic answers. That's someone who hasn't, you haven't really read the Bible because the Bible actually wrestles with the real questions that actual human beings ask at a very deep level. And the story of Job, which we're going to look at in a series after this about grief and how do you deal with your grief because we've all lost so much in the last year. The, it's the Bible that actually asks the question through the whole book of Job, not just one time with a sentence and then a pithy statement uh, writing it off, but a whole narrative and a story asks the question, why is it that bad things happen to good people? And so contrary to what many people think, the Bible is not afraid to ask those kinds of questions about faith. Now I get that there are people who feel like, you know, I, if I doubt, then that must mean I don't have faith. Or if I doubt, then I must be a bad person or a bad Christian or a, or a bad human being. And I just want to tell you that if something is true, it can stand up to questions. It's okay to want evidence. You understand that at the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus gave evidence. Thomas, famous for being the doubting disciple, you know the doubting disciple Thomas? He's like, I'm not going to believe unless I see the wounds myself. And when Jesus appears to Thomas, do you know what he says? He doesn't say, Thomas, just believe. Come on, what's wrong with you, Thomas? What does he say, Thomas? 
here are my hands. Here's my side. Thomas, here's the evidence. So this story in the Old Testament, the book of Job, this very, very wealthy man, a huge family, seven sons, three daughters, in a moment, in one failed swoop, in the span of a few minutes, he finds out that everything he has built, everything he has built his life on, everything that brings him joy and comfort is absolutely wiped away in a moment. Now, this is the Bible asking this question. What do you do in the face of that kind of suffering? We pastored a family, I, uh, and they had a daughter, and she loved horses. Our youngest daughter loves horses. And, and she was 15, and she was, uh, one day she was in the stall, and she was cleaning the horse, and her parents knew that she knew how to groom a horse, and so um, she was there in the stall grooming the horse, and no one was around. She just went by herself, and her mom and dad said, yeah, okay, just come back, you know, when you're done, and and uh, what, it, what happened was somewhere in grooming the horse, the horse uh, must have been startled or something, but kicked her full in the chest right here, full-grown horse. Now, I, I think if uh, other people had been around, they would have heard the commotion and they would have run in and they would have gotten Allie and they would have taken her to the hospital and she probably would have made it, but they found her a few hours later. This just destroyed this family. People of faith. Uh, one Sunday, we were, um, we were after church pastoring, and, and we, we were eating church. We went to Chili's, and, and we sat down and had Chili's, and then there was a family in the church, and their youngest son is a, a freshman in high school, Ben, and Ben came over to the table, real, real fun kid, and, and uh, he's, like, he's joking around. I'm like, okay, we, and when we left, I remember, I vividly remember, like, see you guys later, see you, Ben. A few hours later, I got a phone call. He'd gone into the garage that day, and he liked to work on a motorbike, and he made a noose to string around the handlebars and run it over a bar in their garage, and like a 14-year-old like a boy would do, he stood up on the ladder, and in order to get it, for just to have his hands free, he put the noose around his neck, and then the ladder slipped, and then his mom found him. Now, why am I telling you? Am I telling you that to bring you down? No, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to paint the emotional picture of the suffering that Job went through. And, and Job is a picture. Again, we're going to look at it in more depth in the next series. But Job is a story of what someone does to try and make sense of that. He mourns. He questions God's actions. He curses the day that he was born. He tells his wife to stop her complaining because she's like, listen, curse God and die. Uh, he has friends who give him pat answers. They come and they're comforting for a little bit, but then they start giving him pat answers and tell him this must be his fault and he must have done something wrong to deserve this and how could this be happening to someone like him if he hadn't done things wrong? And, and he's wrestling. He's wrestling through all of these things. Now, we're not going to delve into deeply into the book of Job here, but here's, here's what Job underlines as we're talking about this this morning. What it, what it underlines in bolds and puts in all caps for us to pay attention to. Suffering is very real, and it can be very painful, and it's not helpful when anyone minimizes the suffering or, like Job's friends, tries to give pat answers or scripture verses to help someone get past the grief. It's not helpful. It's real. Suffering is real. But here's the other thing it underscores, bolds, puts in all caps. Suffering does not mean that you must reject God and become a person of no faith. does not mean that. 
So I want to tell you why, just in the few minutes we have left here, I want to tell you why I believe in the face of all these, because I've wrestled with these questions, and they're real to me, and, and I've watched people suffer. I, I've suffered myself, and I've watched a lot of people suffer. And I want to tell you, though, why I still believe to the soles of my feet. And I want to, I want to give you two what are going to feel like philosophical reasons that I believe, and I think they make sense. I hope the questions make sense to you. And then I want to give you two personal reasons that I believe, that I, the, 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 the sources of comfort that the message of Jesus offers to a human person who is going through suffering. Here's, here's the first philosophical reason. Um, evil and suffering are not, listen, not evidence against God. What do you mean, Scott? So if you are just a human being at all, you, 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 you agree with this statement. There's so much pointless in evil and suffering. How can there be a good God? You can see how someone could feel that, right? But there's an assumption behind that statement. Like, all this suffering, how can there be a good God? Here's the, here's the assumption behind that. It's that if I can't see the reason for the suffering, then there must not be a reason, or I would be able to see it. Do, do you see what that is? If I can't see that reason for the suffering, one must not exist. Now, the philosopher Alvin planting a, he says, that's actually a false argument. And he uses this kind of silly illustration. But he says, say you were going camping and you put up your tent. And after you put up your tent, you look inside the tent for a St. Bernard. Big dog. If you don't see a St. Bernard in the tent, it is safe to assume what? That there is no St. Bernard there, right? He says, but it would not hold true if you set up your tent when you went camping and then you looked inside for chiggers. You know chiggers, those little no bugs that get your legs in the summer in the grass? Do you know what I mean? It would not be, he says, if you don't see any, that's not reasonable to believe that they aren't there. But here's what we do. We say, if there were good reasons for the existence of evil and suffering, then I would be able to see them because they would be like a St. Bernard and not a chigger. But here's what Alvin Plantinga asks, and I think this is a very, very fair question. He says, but why should that be the case? I mean, that doesn't really hold up to life. A few weeks ago, we talked about Joseph and the pain and suffering that he went through and how that developed his character. And you may say, well, that's a story in the Bible. Well, it's also true of you and, you and me. I'm not saying I wanted to go through this or I'm glad that it happened but the fact that my mom died when I was 16 of cancer, of an intractable cancer that couldn't be cured, I mean, what outstanding preparation for my life's work as a pastor. I, again, I'm not glad that I went through it. I would rather have my mom than have the experience. But it did something in me. If I were to ask you to take out a piece of paper and draw a line across the piece of paper and, and in, the, in the center of that piece of paper and then write the things in your life that you've enjoyed and have brought you happiness and pleasure and, and satisfaction, the above-the-align experiences, you would write them down and you would know what they were. You know, had kids and got married and found some healing. But then you would also, if I said, well, what are the things in your life that are below the line, that were painful to you? I promise you, if you've lived long enough or you're thoughtful enough, you would pause and some of the things that you would want to write below the line, you would say, you know what? I have to put it now above the line because of what it did in me and to me. I have to change it. It's, it's true. So I think Alvin Plantinga's question is, is fair. Evil and suffering are not evidence against God. Second philosophical thing, evil and suffering um, are actually evidence for God. Now stay with me. 
we, again, have this assumption that people should not suffer. Is that fair? You know, most human beings would say, yeah, people should not suffer. But you got to pause and you got to ask yourself the question, where does that sense come from? In the first place, where do we get the idea that that should be the case, or that ought to be the case, or that is the case? Again, we go back to the plausibility structures. The plausibility structure, the unthought thoughts that operate underneath of the way most of us think and feel in our culture, especially people who are not people of faith. The plausibility structure is built on the philosophy of materialism, that this is the world, this is all we have. Um, It is a beautiful world, it's a great world, there's a lot of creative potential in this world, but when you die, you turn into worm food, and that is it, and you should not put your hope in anything else. And very frankly, it depends on, uh, depends on destruction and violence against the weak. I've got a picture. You're going to hate me for showing this picture, but it is true to life. So I'm going to have you put this picture up. We love penguins and we love seals, but guess what? I'm sorry to break it to you. Seals eat penguins, right? It's the way of the world. It's just, it's just how it goes. You know, we would like to have one of them as a pet, but it's just how it goes. One eats the other. And that's what a materialist would say. Well, that's just how the world is. It's just that brutal. And if we are a variant species of animal, why should that not also be true of us? Where in the world do we get the sensibility that people ought not to suffer? Where in the world does that even come from? So if you have a problem thinking the world is unjust and evil, and so you cannot believe in a good God... Well, you, you can only say Bande Acha is terrible if you also have a way to say, well, there is a way that we are supposed to live. But the materialist viewpoint of that philosophy of how things are, it only offers a basis for what is. It does not offer a basis for what ought to be. Are you tracking with me on that? It just says this is how things are. It can't tell us how things ought to be. Now, I understand, and I've read many of them, but some of the folks they call new atheists, they've tried to do a marketing job and say, no, you know, you need to understand. But if you read the atheists from the older atheists, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, they would all tell you, if you have the guts to believe this, you have to believe it all the way. That's it. This is it. There's no meaning in this life. It's all done when we're done. You, can't, you have no grounds on which to judge anybody for any moral thing because you can only say what is. You can't say what ought to be. So here's, here's the point I'm trying to make. If you abandon God, it doesn't make the problem of evil easier to explain or faith. And with as much trouble you have explaining evil or suffering as a person who believes in God, you're also left without the resources to actually handle it. Like, I, like, I don't know. I can't. It's there. How, what do I do with it? So let me give you the personal reasons for me. Because you... Even as I was thinking about this today, I realized, you know, there, there are people walking in. And we can talk in the abstract about suffering. But there are some of you who are suffering. And you're not sure what to do with that pain. And you're not sure if God cares about you. And I just want to tell you that Christianity gives, this is one of the reasons I believe, gives resources for dealing with suffering because again take away the question of faith you're still left with the reality of suffering and how are you going to handle it you need some resources so let me give you if i could two resources from the person of jesus that i think are powerful resources for dealing with suffering and understanding a god 
in the face, a good God in the face of suffering? Well, the first thing is, it's just the cross of Jesus. I mean, that's suffering on multiple levels. Jesus, uh, Jesus suffered emotionally. He was rejected by his friends. He suffered socially. He was outcast. He was jeered at. He suffered injustice. He was innocent. He suffered physically with the lacerations and the nails in his, his wrists and his feet, a spear in his side. We, if you were here on the Good Friday service uh, uh, a week or so ago, we closed the service by reading Psalm 22 that Jesus quotes on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? That's the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross. And so what Christianity says is that God became human and so has firsthand knowledge of pain and suffering and loneliness and torture. And he goes to the cross for you and I so he can bear the price of our sins, so he can end evil without ending us because we're the ones that are behind the evil in the first place. Now, I've got to be honest with you. Why does God let suffering continue? I, I don't know. I don't know. I have, a, I have questions for God. I'm like, well, why do you allow that? It doesn't seem to make sense to me. I can't in my rational mind make sense of some of it. But here's what I... I don't know the answer fully, but I'll tell you what I know the answer isn't. It cannot be that God does not love us. And so if you take the teaching of Jesus into your heart, you find strength to face the brutal realities of life. On Palm Sunday 2017, uh, there were two Coptic churches in Egypt that were targeted by ISIS, and they set off bombs during their worship service. got a picture here of one of those cathedrals um, and uh, the aftermath of the explosion. 44 people were killed in church. Here's the funeral of some of the, the people who died, and then this next picture is of some of the mothers and the wives just grieving, Christian women grieving. You can, I mean, the, the, if you look closely at the picture, it's, just, it's palpable, the grief that's on their face. But these are Christian people, and so they understand that grief is very real and suffering is very real, but they also understand that God is with them in their suffering. That's a message of the cross, that God is with you in your suffering. He understands what it's like to suffer. Because when you're suffering, here's what you want to know. Does anybody understand what I'm going through? The message of Christianity is God understands what you're going through. The second thing from the the life of Jesus is the resurrection. It's the message that our suffering is not in vain. I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings. If you've read the books or seen the movies, written by J.R.R. Tolkien, a a Catholic Christian who wrote them as as an imaginative understanding of the battle between good and evil and how things are ultimately reconciled and redeemed. And one of the characters is named Samwise Gamgee. He goes on this quest with his friend Frodo, and they're taking this ring, if you know the story, to Mount Doom to get rid of it. It's a source of evil and and he's taking it there, and he turns in, in one kind of poignant point in one of the books, and he turns to the, the kind of elder, wise figure, the wizard Gandalf, and he, he looks, and he, he has this question. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? <laughs> That's a, a resurrection kind of question. The answer of Christianity is yes. Like the Christian teaching is that the, not that our future is this immaterial paradise in some other place, but that there's a new heaven and a new earth. You could read about it in Isaiah and in the New Testament and the book of Revelation. So we're not going to get just a consolation for our trouble. We're going to get a restoration of all things. And so parents who lost a child in the tsunami and those parents that I pastored who lost children and you, there's going to be a restoration of all things. And so what happened for Jesus' body on Easter Sunday will happen to all of God's creation and to you. That's the resurrection message. 
uh, that, that's how it goes. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that the resurrection of Jesus, he calls it the first fruits. We used to live near an orchard and we would go at apple picking time when they were ripe on the tree. And we would go and we would pick the apple and then we would take a bite of the apple. And when you took a bite of that first fruit from the tree, you knew what to expect with all the other apples that you would encounter. That's what Paul's saying. He said, what happened for Jesus' body? He's the first fruit. You know what's coming. So the pastor of that Coptic church, Father Bulas George of St. Mark's Church in Cairo, Egypt, uh, as, a, as a response, I don't know if it was at the funeral of these men. Here's a picture of him on Zoom recently. Christian man. Uh, he gave a nine-minute message. I, I wanted to play it for you here. He's, he speaks Arabic, and you'd have to watch the subtitles, and it might be hard. I'm going to post it on my social media this afternoon. Um, one of the best messages I've ever heard because <laughs> it's a message of resurrection hope. And he says two things in nine minutes. It's so powerful. He says, uh, first he says, I want to tell, because uh, the title of his message is, a message to those who want to kill us. Ah. What resource you got that would let you do that? He says, first I want to tell you thank you. Thank you. He said, we go and visit people. We try to get them to come to church, but um, you, did your work, you did our work for us, and now our church is packed. Thank you. <laughs> He said, and thank you, thank you. You sent us on to our destination ahead of time. He said, if you know if someone's taking a trip and they're going from one place and the end of their journey is a, is a beautiful city, he said, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could get on a rocket ship and go from where you are to that city immediately? And that's what you've done. Thank you, thank you. You've done that for us. Only someone who sees life through the lens of the cross that God is with us could say something like that. And then he goes on, he says, but I also want to tell you that we love you. And Jesus commands us to love our enemies, and so we forgive you. We don't hate you. We love you. We would love for you to know the love of God who loves you like that, because then you could sleep comfortably at night. Only something like the resurrection could do that for you. I, I don't. I'm wearing today. I'm wearing the uh, the shirt that was. Uh, the runners were given yesterday at the Clean Water 5K. Can you see that? I walked it, blazing 56 minutes. And, and, and here's my question for you, because the resurrection is, is not simply hope for what will happen. Here's what the resurrection does when you understand it, is it becomes something in the future that you reach into God's future and you pluck the fruit from that tree and you bring the fruit fruit of that future filled with peace and no suffering. You bring it into the present and you make yourself available to God to be the kind of person through whom suffering is alleviated in the world. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus and you, you say, well, I can't believe in all this. Well, okay, in your system, however that works, does your system routinely move people out of themselves to go out into the world and find the places that suffering is happening and alleviate it. And the reason I'm wearing the shirt is because yesterday a bunch of you said, you know what, it's not right that a little girl has to walk. So if you walk that 5K, that's the, I don't know if you know this, that's the average distance in the developing world that it's usually a girl and it's usually a she's usually a child and she misses school to do it. She walks that exact distance that took me 56 minutes yesterday 
to get dirty water, and she takes that dirty water back and gives it to her little three-year-old brother, and he drinks it, and he gets diarrhea, and he dies. And some Christians say, no! That kind of suffering can't happen in the world. So you know what we'll do? We'll plan a race, and we'll ask people to pay $35, and they'll go walk, and, and we'll go build wells in villages where that doesn't have to happen for little children anymore. Why? It's because of the resurrection. And so you've already built, I think it's, we're close to a dozen wells, another three wells. We're on the verge of another four. You can buy a t-shirt and help do that. I'm not, this wasn't a giant sales pitch, but you can do it. Only the resurrection moves you to be that kind of a person. So I want to pray for you. I want to invite you to stand with me. Thank you so much for those of you who are here and, and you've decided to wrestle. And I so admire anyone who's willing to wrestle and, uh, um, I'm, I'm just so want to be so respectful of you, and, and um, if you have questions, you can shoot an email to me. My questions at firstnaz.org, and I'm going to be engaging with questions that people ask that are not one of the ones we're answering, and um, love to the dialogue with you about that. But let me pray for you, would you? Thank you, Jesus, for the resurrection hope that absolutely helps us see the future in a different way, and lifts us beyond the present moment, the suffering that's real, even the grief that's real, like the Apostle Paul said. We grieve. It's real. It hurts. But we don't grieve like people without hope. So thank you for the resurrection hope that can fill our heart. And thank you for the resurrection hope that can change how we operate in the world and help us to see ourselves as agents of reconciliation and redemption and justice. We want to do more of that in your name, Jesus. We want to be faithful to your message. We know that you are risen from the dead. We don't, we don't think it's an idea. We know it happened, and so we put our absolute confidence in it. So for my friend who's, uh, who's struggling today, who's wrestling today, who's asking questions, uh, I pray that through this that they would see that you are there and you are real and you do love them and you do care about them and you are moved by their suffering. You are close. You are available. You have not abandoned them. I pray that they'd see that. I, I, I get that's a journey, Lord. And I pray for my friend who, uh, who they, they, they love you, but they, these are questions that they wrestle with and they, they felt like they're bad Christian because they wrestle. Give them, give them the confidence of the resurrection, but give them the assurance beyond that that you can handle their questions. That you're never overwhelmed by how broken we are. Oh, what good news. What good news. So, thank you. I pray this in your name. All God's people say.